Portions of the following program may contain pre-recorded material. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. That music means it's the last radio hour of the week. Live, I'm on the West Coast, deep in the heart of the Beltway, is Dean Matt Spaulding, who helms the Kirby Center in the Graduate School of Public Policy and Statesmanship for Hillsdale College in the heart of Washington, D.C. Dean Spaulding, welcome back. Good to have you this morning. Good to be with you, Hugh, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Has the snow begun to fall there in D.C.? Uh, no, but we're already buying milk and bread, so that's a sign that there must be snow coming. Yes, that's a, you know, in, in Ohio we call it April, but in the Beltway people panic at the sign of right, snow. Right, exactly. Uh, Dean Spaulding, we're going to talk Supreme Court this hour. We're breaking from our Shakespeare series to do so. I want to begin, though, with a uh, defense of my friend Ilya Shapiro. And I don't know if you know Ilya at the Cato Institute. You've been around D.C. long I did, enough. I did. Yeah. Uh, uh, the left is trying to cancel him. And he has just been appointed at Georgetown as the lecturer. But he pointed out on Twitter yesterday that objectively the best pick for the Supreme Court vacancy by Justice Beyer would be Judge Srinivasan on the D.C. Circuit, who um, has identity politics, of course, being the first Asian Indian American, but also is the smartest federal court judge in a Prague. But because Biden said he's only going to consider black women for Scotusilia rights, there will always be an asterisk attached to whoever the nominee is going to be. And then he asked the question, is Joe Biden racist and sexist for saying his Supreme Court nominee will be a black woman? The left is up in arms. Uh, I think Ilya has just pointed out the obvious problem of naming judges by race. What do you make of the attack on Ilya? What do you make of Joe Biden's pledge to only consider black women for the replacement for Justice Breyer? Well, I, I know Ilya. I think you're you're absolutely right about that. Uh, he has pointed out the the obvious observation that everyone is aware of, but is is not willing to to discuss. Um, you know what's especially ironic about all of this is that there has been brewing, and there's a court case that'll come up in the fall, uh, and uh, about affirmative action, uh, and yet. The president is saying he's going to appoint a black woman, which is actually unconstitutional based on the Baki. I mean, the most the basic affirmative action case said you can't do that. Uh, it's a blatantly uh, discriminatory action that um, uh, even the, the the old left would have objected to. So to make the observation, I think is is just points to the absurdity of this cancel culture, but it, it also. Uh, kind of goes to the absurdity of our times. Uh, there will be an asterisk uh, uh, based on that appointment. He should appoint the best person he can find in, in, consistent with his beliefs. Um, you know, I, I think this appointment will not be helpful. Uh, it won't radically change the makeup of the court, but the, the, if, if, a, if a more radical person is put on there, it's going to weaken the uh, progressive argument on the court, which was ultimately weaken their position, if that's what they want, uh, if they want a strong position. And so I think it's also not a good move on their part, but it's just over the top, um, a, a blatant violation of any anti-discriminatory discriminatory policies. Can you imagine if a Republican said, I want to appoint a white male Catholic or whatever it might be? Um, 
to, so, so to point that out, I, I, I think, and not accept someone even pointing that out, uh, points to the, the absolute um, uh, 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 absurd point that we've come in our public discussion. Now, President Reagan, when he ran in 1980, promised to appoint a woman. And he did. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor was the first woman appointed to the court by Ronald Reagan. And in any other context, overt discrimination on the basis of race and gender is unconstitutional. But the appointments clause is is absolute and the confirmation clause is absolute. So the president can do whatever he want. He can he can decide to appoint me and he can decide to appoint you so he can he can nominate whomever he wants. What I do not like bad decisions like those. It's a terrible decision. Uh, but but uh, but Ilya Shapiro is an academic, and I think every alum of Georgetown Law needs to call Georgetown Law today and say, if you fire Shapiro, if you yield to cancel culture, you'll never see another dollar from us. A Catholic university yielding to uh, discrimination or political blowback would be shameful beyond measure, Ilya, uh, 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 Matt Spaulding. No, I, I, I agree. Look, this this you know goes well beyond this uh, immediate uh, circumstance. The idea that an academic of all people, someone who has academic freedom, who is there for the purpose of teaching ideas, uh, with the recognition that there will be disagreements, the idea that you would fire someone on the basis of that, uh, given they voiced an opinion you don't uh, agree with. I mean, what's next? Um, you know, this is this is by no means a, some, uh, an argument that is outside the realm of, of uh, reasonable opinion to, to point this out. I'll tell you what's um, next, uh, Matt, uh, the tax-exempt status of institutions with which the left agrees. That's what's next. Well, in terms of policy, no, I agree. They've long been itching to do that one and, and start making these uh, distinctions. This is what happens when you have uh, progressive majorities it turns out, lo and behold, they're, they're intolerant. They're intolerant of disagreement, and they start uh, advancing policies to, in, to enforce that disagreement. Uh, we're seeing it here and there at universities um, in, in, uh, with, with apps and the Internet. Um, but we will increasingly see that in, in public policies, of course. If the uh, progressive left wins. And all these things, uh, yeah. including some of these court decisions we're going to talk about, are extremely important. Now, I want to run down. We have a, a, a term of terms. This is what Donald Trump will be remembered for, what Leader McConnell will be remembered for, are the decisions in six cases coming up this spring. Dobbs is the case in which Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey is up for grabs. Washington State has a free exercise case on whether or not a coach can lead his team in praying. The 404 nightmare for property owners, the Clean Water Act nightmare, is up before the court. Gun laws are being reviewed. We will get a standard. Affirmative action, as you mentioned, should be put in its grave and killed dead. And then, of course, Carson versus Macon is a question of whether or not you can discriminate against religious institutions. It's a mixed establishment clause, free exercise clause. Let's start with Dobbs. I don't believe Breyer's replacement is going to make a lick of difference. I think Justice Breyer is going to be dissenting in all six of these areas. What do you think about Dobbs, uh, Matt Spaulding? Well, I'll make a, a general point. I, I agree with you. I think Breyer's uh, replacement won't make a, a bit of difference generally. But, but here it will weaken something, which is uh, if you replace Breyer with somebody 
who is more ideal, even more ideologically progressive, it'll weaken Kagan's ability to try to pull off conservatives. Um, I mean, she's the real uh, intellectual force on the left. And I think one of the general dynamics we're seeing in a lot of these cases is that she's trying to figure out ways to weaken this growing conservative majority. Um, I think that that's happening. We're seeing that here and there. I think one place where that's not going to happen in Breyer's appointment, it makes no difference, uh, is actually the Dobbs case. I think that's the exception here. Um, the, the, the oral arguments, I think, were uh, very good. Now, oral arguments do not necessarily determine the outcome, but uh, there were strong voices. I think that um, you know, Alito and Thomas... In this case, Kavanaugh, I think, were some of the give some of the strongest signals they want to overrule um, in Dobbs. I think uh, Gorsuch rightly observed there's really no middle ground to be taken on this, which suggests where he is. Um, Barrett gave us the fewest signals, but talked about um, um, uh, you know it's kind of safe areas and other alternatives, which might suggest where she is. So my guess is that. Uh, in a lot of these cases, we're looking for Roberts is looking for middle grounds, um, but I don't think he can find one. Now, now you know, Dean Spaulding, I disagree with you on this. I wrote a piece for National Review, the Chief Justice's concurrence in Citizens United about when to uh, jettison precedent and when precedent. to hold to it. Is yeah, that's a, the best thing we can point to. Yeah, and I think he's going to be 6-3. I think he's going to write the majority for the right. overturning of Roe and Casey. And I also think he's a mortal lock on the affirmative action case. Anyone who's read his Seattle school's opinion where he says the way to end discrimination on the basis of race is to end discriminating on the basis of race. I mean, right. these are two home runs that are coming. 30 seconds to you, Matt Spaulding. No, I, 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 I think that's right. But I think we're in an odd situation. I think what Roberts is looking for... He, he's a, a, got a majority, and he's looking at a court that's going to be around for a while. How do we reverse a number of things? And he's looking for ways to do it and pull that majority together. And I think in these cases, you're right, it goes and becomes a 6-3 majority because he's going to go with those. With I those think authority. he's going to assign the opinion to himself, and they will be the major opinions like McCullough v. Maryland. He's already done his Marbury, which was the Obamacare case. Now he's got his McCullough and others about to arrive. Don't go anywhere, America. We're talking about the Roberts Court in the, tea, the term that we have been working for our entire lives. Thank you, Leader McConnell, for this court and Donald Trump for your nominees. Somewhere in the world, news is happening. You'll hear it here first, but only if you're here when Hugh Hewitt continues. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. We break from our series on Shakespeare's history plays because the Supreme Court is undergoing a change. Uh, Justice Breyer is stepping down. And so Dean Matt Spaulding, who helms the Hillsdale Graduate Program on Statesmanship inside the Beltway at the Kirby Center, Hillsdale's lantern of sweet reason inside the Beltway in the shadow of the Capitol, joins me to walk through the cases ahead and the impact of Breyer's retirement, which will be zero let me go to Carson versus Macon. Uh, this is a key free exercise slash uh, establishment clause case. 
Uh, do you want to explain what it's about? Why Hillsdale cares about this a lot, Matt Spaulding? <laughs> well, well, actually, I, I think this one is an important case, and it is um, continuing a line of cases that anybody interested in um, religious liberty should be following. It has to do with education and the idea that benefits that are given out generally should not discriminate against religious schools. So in, in, in Maine, they have a, a program so that school-age children have an opportunity to receive public education, but not all districts uh, pro- can provide those uh, public schools, so they allow them to then uh, go to, to private schools. So it's, it's essentially a voucher program. And the, and the two families in, in question, uh, there aren't... Pu- uh, public schools available where they are, so they want to send their kids, it turns out, to some uh, religious schools, and they want to use the public money to do so. Um, and their argument is that this is a general benefit provided to everyone equally. You're discriminating against us because we want to send our kids to schools that just happen to be religious. Well, following Trinity Lutheran, uh, a case we've talked about in the past, which is very important, uh, that barred government from dying a church of benefit that is otherwise available to everyone. Um, I think they've got a very good argument, and that case could well go in the right direction and establish a great precedent for uh, lots of educational questions, including some that we are especially interested in in general, in particular having to do, say, with charter schools. Um, if public money is used to support education generally, you can't discriminate against schools that are religious. Now, I also believe this will be a 6-3 decision. I've taught a free exercise seminar for probably half of the 25 years I've taught con law at Chapman's Fowler School of Law. And I've always taught that we needed two votes to make a breakthrough, which is to uh, overturn um, Smith, which is the one bad decision of Justice Scalia's career. And (laughs) just as Coney Barrett indicated in the last free exercise case that she was there, but she needed to think on what to replace it with. I believe this is the moment that they will, A, strike down every little Blaine amendment. And Blaine is the senator from Maine who brought much religious discrimination upon the Catholics of the land. They will strike down everything looking like a Blaine amendment, smelling like a Blaine amendment. They will kill it dead. And I think they will overturn Smith. And I think Amy Coney Barrett's going to write here. That's my prediction on this, Matt, and I wow, think we're going to be very happy. That would be that would be monumental. Um, but but I think here and, and again it, it, with the, with the, our previous discussion of Dobbs, I, I think what we're seeing is there is a logic to the law, and once that logic starts up and gets going, we're starting to see the, these trains come in now, uh, and we're beginning to see this playing out. And, and here I will agree with you, Hugh. I think I think Roberts is is a key to that and uh, is sending certain signals. I think there are places where he wants to find some compromises here and there, and we have there are some cases that are these unusual uh, splits, as in the vaccine case um, and the cases that split. Uh, but but I think we're what we're beginning to see is this larger trajectory of where the court wants to go, and I think part of that is. Um, uh, if we put it in broader political terms, how does a court start unraveling the mess we're in in a lot of these areas where they're realizing they've become legislators, but they don't want to be? They've got to get out. You know, and I've got to say, Matt, before the break. They've got to find the logic to get out of it. Think about this during the break. The two most maligned 
conservatives in Washington, D.C. are Chief Justice Roberts and Senate Majority and now Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Those two are going, they always play the long game. The long game always wins, and the culmination of their long game is this term. Write that down. Chief Justice Roberts, Senate GOP Leader McConnell are the heroes of this hour. We'll talk more about it after the break. I'm Hugh Hewitt. You're in the middle of a non-stop action-packed information blitz. The Hugh Hewitt Show is coming right back. Hugh Hewitt live on the West Coast, joined by Dean Matt Spaulding, who helms the Hillsdale Graduate Program on Statesmanship from the Kirby Center in the heart of Washington, D.C. Uh, Dean Spaulding, I just tweeted out during the break that Chief Justice Roberts and Leader McConnell are masters of the long game. Uh, Matt McConnell saved the Constitution, in my view, by holding open the seat vacated by the death of Justice Scalia in 2016. The Chief Justice has prepped for years to jettison the worst precedent. The Chief Justice's concurrence in Citizens United explains how you do that. And so I think we're going to see Roe v. Wade and Casey overturned. I think we're going to see Smith, uh, Employment Division versus Smith on free exercise overturned. I think we're going to see all affirmative action completely outlawed. We're going to get a standard on gun rights legislation we're going to get relief for property rights owner. It's all coming. Are you as optimistic as I am about the next six months? I think this is the greatest six months of my life uh, in constitutional I, law I, terms. I, I, I agree generally. Um, I don't know that I'm as optimistic in every particular, but I think uh, I agree with the general tenor of what you're saying. Um, and I, I've come to that uh, looking less at the court as a um, uh conservative purist, if you will, I'm, I'm choosing my words carefully here to be fair, uh, there, uh, and, and looking more, as you suggest, the long game, which is the same way I look at Mitch McConnell, who I like quite a bit. Um, it's a different way of thinking. It's, it's, a, different, it's a different form, if you will, of, of statesmanship. Uh, the, the Scalia, you know, I, I'm, I'm making uh, an argument, and I'll dissent if need be, but I'm going to make my argument. Um, uh, that, that, that presents a, a, a powerful aspect of, of the court's positioning. I, I think uh, Chief Justice Roberts is in a different position. First of all, he's chief, and we can't under, um, uh, underscore that too much. Um, he's thinking uh, in a long-term option, how do I move the court in a direction as a court um, he's not in the position where he's a minority merely making an argument that might be picked up 10, 20 years from now. He's trying to put together majorities. Now, I do think, which is where I'll, uh, I guess I'll push back a little bit, that, there, that if, if there is an option in some cases, he will find some sort of compromise and put off the decision. Now, one could argue that's prudently pushing the, the Pushing it into a later, more more optimistic or, or more uh, successful outcome later, uh, and that's part of his strategy. But we, we do see that. I mean, for instance, when he went with the majority in, in the split ma- uh, vaccine mandate cases, right? One that throws out OSHA, which I think was a clear case, and then one that upheld the HHS mandate. And he went. He and um, Kavanaugh. Who else went with him? Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh. went with the three progressives. Right, so he does that sometimes, but that might be part of his strategy. But I think when something is clear, and the argument is powerful in the main cases you've mentioned here, 
I think he's going to turn out to be uh, very good and a strong chief leading us in the right direction. So I'm perhaps not as optimistic as you are, the eternal optimist. Um, I tend to uh, be open to disappointment on the courts because it happens often. But having said that, I think I'm, I'm, I'm now open with, and with you in seeing this larger trajectory. But I, I do think this term, given the course uh, cases that are before us, will uh, give us, if not you know, the clearest signal, uh, the, the greatest opportunity to see that coming into fruition. And this will be a true test of his role as Chief Justice. Now, Dean, Matt Spaulding, you, you lead the graduate program on statesmanship. So you study statesmanship. Here's my proposition. Chief Justice Roberts, GOP Senate leader McConnell are both statesmen, meaning they are they have shaped the battlefield of ideas in domestic politics and American constitutional law for literally decades. They have worked at it. Roberts, as a young lawyer in the Department of Justice, then at the White House Counsel, then as Deputy Solicitor General, then as Solicitor General, then as a D.C. Circuit Judge and now as Chief Justice McConnell, First as an aide on the Hill, and then as a senator, and then as a whip, and then as the leader. They have both played the long game, which is the title of Leader McConnell's memoir, for this moment. Now, the key thing for statesmen is that when you come to the moment that every single piece on the battlefield is in the right position that you act. So I think we are at that moment. I think we are at the time when we will know about the Chief Justice. But if I'm right... And these are all 6-3. Will you agree with me he has proven himself to be a judicial statesman on par with Chief Justice Marshall? Ooh, that's a, that's a, that's a tough question. Um, uh, here, I, I will grant you this. The, um, the, the, the degree to which uh, these are great statesmen, uh, you, you set that up correctly. But, of course, great statesmanship is judged by, ultimately, the ends. Where, yes. where this trajectory is going, and, and we're going to see that come out here. So, so I generally agree with you. If, it's, if these are all 6-3, this is a huge, huge, massive um, uh, recalculation, if you will, of how conservatives uh, look at and should look at Chief Justice Roberts. But the unknown here um, is, are these going to be powerful 6-3 decisions in which he actually takes position of leading a majority into a powerful argument, or are these going? I mean, the other possibility, uh, I think, would, would be a pushback. Although I don't think I'm agreeing with this, is that they could be. He could use his take the majority in order to weaken these as much as he possibly can. Uh, you see, I know conservatives suspect him of that. In between, that would be not be imprudent. That is, it might be prudent of him to actually shape it in a way that continues this trajectory going. Yeah, I, I know conservatives suspect him, and sometimes Justice Kavanaugh of that. The real test will be the decision on the 404 permitting. Now, Dr. Arn and I, back in the day, 30 years ago, would go up and down California in vain against the Endangered Species Act and the Clean Water Act as being deep, deep impositions on the rights of private property not to be taken without just compensation. And it's been 30 years coming, and Justice Kennedy screwed it up when it was set up in Rapanos. He came down with a rule saying, ah, maybe it's okay to take people's land if they have wetlands adjacent to waters of the United States. Just stupid. If Justice Kavanaugh writes that, as I think, it will be the end not only of 404, but of massive regulatory burdens on private property. How important is protecting private property, Matt Spaulding? Oh, no, no, that one, I think, I think you're absolutely right on that one. That one is 
crucially important. And to go back to your general point about statesmanship, if all these cases, and as we're setting it up, this is a distinct possibility, in each one of these cases, and here I will agree with you, if they are, they come out 6-3, and that's, that majority of that 6-3 is reestablishing a principle which can continue to guide majorities in the future, then I, then I think you're absolutely correct. This is monumental. And here, when it comes to property and property rights, uh, uh, we have been so far afoot, and there's been very little uh, for us to look to for assistance. Uh, this c- case looks to me to be to be well set up. I mean, I defer to you. You know this this particular one more, much more than I do. Socket is very well, well set, set up. up. Yep, very well to, set up to uh, to establish a principle of the law, uh, which is to reestablish the centrality of property rights. Remember. A lot of these cases, uh, and we sometimes get confused and down in the weeds, and actually there have been several cases in, 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 in um, uh, several of these where the justices have started to point this out more, and I've already alluded to it. This is the legislative problem. Um, the, these justices, the conservatives, are starting to point out that they're acting like a legislature, doing things legislatures ought to do. They're, they're nuancing this and setting up this. Uh, when in reality, what the law should do, and this is where the parallel to Marshall, I think, comes in, what the law should do is lay out clearly the principle of the law, the principles of the law informed by the Constitution. And otherwise, they should, as much as possible, defer to the legislature to get into the policy nuances. But they should always be pointing to that. So if in these cases, these majorities reestablish a principle, and in doing so, rebuild the courts as the, the branch of government, which is always focused on constitutional principle and not legislating. That, I think, would be the conservative revolution we've all been looking for, or at least the beginnings of it. You know, when because we come that back. That plays out now for another decade or so. We're on the road to rebuilding our constitutional system. That's it. It's originalism's triumph. I'm doing a... Uh a law review symposium today for Chapman. It, it's virtual. People can tune in about the new originalism. And the new originalism is actually just the old Constitution. The new originalism is the Constitution was intended to be read by farmers and free people and understood and to be voted upon in ratification uh, conventions. And it, it's not a secret sauce. It doesn't say anything about gun laws other than that the right to possess weapons is protected. We have a New York State rifle and pistol case coming up before the Supreme Court. And again, they have to do something. I think they will establish by 6-3 a very deferential standard of review for all state and local gun regulation that does not completely prohibit the possessing of weapons. What do you think, Matt Spaulding? Uh, I generally think that, that case, I'm a little bit, I don't know if I would say pessimistic, but a little bit more confused. The, the oral arguments seem to be raising a lot of questions, and the, the, the law there is um, not quite as problematic as it seems to be on its face. So I'm not quite sure, but having said that, it seems to be a perfect situation for them to then come in and actually establish a clear um, rule. Um, and again, I think if, if they do so, I think that will be a a, a great signal uh, that that's the direction uh, they're going. That was argued by Paul Clement, who I yep. think is 
that did a great job, and it's a good friend of mine. Um, what does he it's, think it's, is going to? Well, you can't. He can't. He can't tell you what he's going to think. Here's what I think. I think that the courts realize that there are rational or or at least um, compelling reasons to sometime regulate weapons, and they're going to recognize the right of state and local governments to do so. But they're going to absolutely crush the efforts to ban guns, as they yeah. should. The right to self defense is inherent no, in the it, in the Constitution. Right. No, if they if they do it that way, that would that's the only way out of this dilemma. Um, is, is to try to find uh, that line. And, and here, this, this goes back, this is the same thing with Dobbs and all these cases. There are two ways to get out of these dilemmas. One is to try to define some arbitrary system of rational judgment. Uh, but, of course, that makes the problem worse, which I think is one of why the Dobbs case, they're not going to try to go that way. When we come back from break, we're going to talk about what Hillsdale is going to do when we go 6-0 on these cases. Again, it's the Dobbs case, the abortion case, the Washington State praying coats case, the 404 permitting case, the gun law case, the affirmative action case from Harvard, and Carson versus Macon. And I think we're going to go 6-0, and and then we're going to talk about what the Kirby Center is going to do to celebrate when that happens. Don't go anywhere, America. Dean Matt Spaulding will be back for the last segment of today's Hillsdale Dialogue. This is The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Dean Matt Spaulding helms the Kirby Center of Hillsdale College in the heart of Washington, D.C., where he also superintends the graduate program on statesmanship. Uh, Dean Spaulding, if we go 6-0 and with 6-3 cases with the Chief Justice and the majority on Dobbs, on the Washington State mm-hmm. praying coach, on Sackett, the 404 case, on New York State rifle and pistol, the gun law case, on affirmative action against Harvard where we banish affirmative action forever, and in Carson, if we go 6-0-6-3, will the Kirby Center dedicate a Mitch McConnell, John Roberts long game room? <laughs> Uh, that's, that's a good question. Um, boy, we might we probably think about it. Uh, and look, these are I, I don't mean to be be flippant. This, this is monumental. Uh, here we, we've talked forever about how do we turn things in order to begin recovering constitutional government. We talked about particular cases, uh, events, elections. Those things are all important. But we're we're I think we're beginning to see coalescing here, and this term will be largely determinative. Um, uh, the way the court uh, could do that. And remember, I've, I've long argued, and I think you agree with this, that the court by itself is not going to do this, but they can create the circumstances by which we can save the country. I, I, and I would point out that in a lot of these, several of these cases, the Guns case, the Dobbs case in particular, which I think has radical implications well beyond abortion, um, those will have the effect of reviving the legislative process, especially the state legislative process. And I think that structural um, revival, if you will, within our constitutional system is really the key to to getting constitutional government going again, getting self-government going again, and getting actively involved in constitutional government. And the courts, in all of these cases, is, does something extremely significant in moving away from the situation. This is what I was saying when we came to break last time 
rather than making decisions based on some sort of theory and nuancing and test, rather than the courts being legislators, saying their job is the Constitution and otherwise deferring to legislatures, uh, d- deferring to political actors, deferring to those that have um, uh, that, are, that are responsible through consent to the American people. You know, the other aspect of this, which has already been moving, but there's really not a direct case, although it indirectly comes up in several of these, is the, the problem of delegation, right? I think there, I think we're seeing a movement within this court uh, against delegation, which again is deferring back to legislatures. Yeah, there is a major so I, rule I, I, doctrine I, at work in the 404 permitting. I think that yeah, we are, so we are I, going to see that doctrine revised and, and Justice Kavanaugh writing to cabin these out-of-control administrative agencies. So you put all those things together, that's a huge monumental um, uh, move, and I think if all of these things happen, if the Hugh Hewitt optimistic outcome of the world happens, I, I think the the conservative legal movement, uh, which has come under some criticism, uh, in some cases you know, rightly, in some cases wrongly, I, I think uh, it's a huge boost. But I think, it, I think what what we're seeing rightly, and here I think if, if this is what's going on, Roberts is playing the long game. What is the court's role in reviving constitutionalism. It might not look exactly or immediately uh, what some of us might want to see in particular cases, uh, but I think we're seeing the pieces fall into place, and then some big blocks are going to fall into place. Let, let me embroider that. Conservatives should not expect the court to declare that life in the womb is a protected citizen. That's not their job. Their job is to say, this is not our choice. This is a choice for state legislatures. That's right. That's right. And, and, and so yeah. that's originalism, but it might disappoint some pro-life conservatives. It could, well, intellectually, intellectually, I'm actually there, which is a, I think that that is a person. But the question is whether that's the right role for, for a court, uh, especially as it's currently set up. Uh, I think that's where they should, they should rightly defer to legislatures. Yeah, and, and what you've been saying, Matt Spaulding, is that originalism is the original seven delineations of the three branches contending with each other, both at the state and the local level and the state and the federal legislation, and, of course, how the United States deals with uh, international powers, which is a federal law. There are seven sets of relationships, legislature, court, court president, president, legislature. And there's a federal government, state government relationship, and there's an international relationship. There are many dimensions here, and I think... Every the tale will be told. We're, we're going to talk in July, right? If I'm of six course. and zero, oh, and it's six and three, that that McConnell Roberts room on the long game has to go somewhere in the Kirby Center. <laughs> well, we'll invite you to the dedication. There you go. I, I, we, we'll find a donor. We will get a new room at the Kirby Center to celebrate prudence. Because isn't that really what both men have been about? Last word to you, Dean. Uh, it, it is about prudence, and I have to say, what you just uh, observed about the structure of the Constitution, how it works, that is John Marshall. I've been teaching him lately, and that's exactly the way he thinks about it, and it's a revival of that kind of Marshall constitutionalism. That is a statesmanship worth, uh, worth honoring. That is my second lecture in con law that I've been teaching for 25 years, and it, it always makes people say, oh, I get it now. And we're about to get it back now.
Matt Spaulding, always a pleasure. Hillsdale on Twitter. Follow me the next week, America. Thank you, Ben and Adam. Thank you, General Eason. We'll talk to you Monday on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. When you absolutely, positively need the truth, this is where you turn. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show.